What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode. We are finally 100% back to normal. At least me, I know Mike was 100% back to normal since the last time we did the podcast. I feel close to like 99.5% uh, recovered, actually in a few ways better than what I was before. I'm so really happy about that. So we're going to shoot another podcast, which I'm also really excited about. And Mike, you've been back to work. How's this week been uh, since we last spoke? We were just talking about this. Um... First cup, the first three days were fine, but the fourth day, as I was just telling you, was wound up being like 15, 15 and a half hours long because a couple of my patients were on like the brink and there's a lot of work that had to go into bringing them back and stabilizing them and all that stuff. So then I, I finished late and then I had to chart everything that I did during the day, which took me quite a bit of time. So I was just sitting there plugging away on the computer <laughs> when you got home you probably had a meal did you take any supplements for sleep or do you feel like when you work those long hours you don't need anything for sleep no i usually for me it's it's not like work doesn't necessarily make impair my sleep or it, these external influences don't necessarily impair my sleep what usually wrecks my sleep is if i eat something and it irritates my gut so usually if I have like a sleeping issue, what I'll correct it with is clearing out my gut or using something to calm down my gut. Um, so after a long day like that, like I went to sleep, no problem. <laughs> I literally just, I came home, I ate and then I just, I conked out super easy. So what I do use before sleep though, uh, a lot of times is pregnenolone just because I noticed that when I do use that, I sleep very deeply and pretty well. So that's interesting. What do you use to clean out the gut when your gut is irritated? Um, I there's a couple different things. I do have cascara. I also I'll I'd increase my dose of magnesium. Or sometimes if I'm like quite irritated, I'll take a very small amount of cyproheptadine. So that doesn't necessarily clear out the gut, but it does have an anti-serotonin effect. A lot of times the effects that I'll, like the gut irritation I'll feel won't be until the food hits the colon or, or a certain portion of my colon. And I, I know my transit time essentially. So as I know which portion it hits and then how long it's going to hit. So if I eat something and so say like right now I was having gut irritation, I was uncomfortable. I can assume comfortably most times that it, it was something I ate previous day during breakfast. Um, the other thing too, is since my diet is so consistent and since my diet is so regular as far as the types of foods that I eat, what I eat and what I'm doing on a regular basis, it's really easy for me to pinpoint which foods are bothering me and which foods aren't. So that is the, it's not that I don't have variety, but it's that there's like, there's a very consistent variety of different foods that I've tested out and built, basically built out a paradigm or, or yeah, I guess built out a paradigm that I, that I use on a regular basis and I'm comfortable with those foods. So if I introduce something new and I have a response, most times I can figure out what it is pretty easily within a couple of days or so. I think you ever used a short course of antibiotics, like some of the safer uh, tetracycline or penicillin or something like that. I have used them. I use them in higher dosages. Uh, I also use them in lower dosages. The antibiotics, uh, I've also used things like rifaximin, which a lot of people use for SIBO. And it's a, it's an antibiotic that's only in, in the gut. It only stays in the gut lumen and it's activated by bile acids. 
and it's supposed to be helpful for clearing out small intestine. So I've used that. I've used penicillin. I've used tet tetracycline and I've used Bactrim, which is a, what is it? Uh, sulfamexasol and I'm forgetting the other. It's a combination that works on, uh, it's a combination medication of two different pills that work on folate metabolism with bacteria. Um, I'm just forgetting what the other, uh, the other drug is inside Bactrim, but I've used all of those. I didn't necessarily, I don't know how much they helped. I know that when I did tetracycline at full doses, uh, I wound up getting gut issues after for quite a while. So I wasn't keen on doing antibiotics again after that, because it took me, took me a couple months to get my gut back appropriately. Like I, got, I was getting weird symptoms. I also use minocycline. Uh, I did kind of like the effects of minocycline. However, when I went into the higher dose range, like the actual therapeutic dose range based on what you could like what you would use for treating different things, I started to get pretty weird symptoms that are common for minocycline. So I'm not a super fan of using the antibiotics. My preference would be for using uh, herbal antimicrobials. So oregano oil, cinnamon oil, a lot of them have potencies, at least in minimum inhibitory concentration studies that are similar to or better than some of the antibiotics. So I found that oregano oil that's the one that I use uh, regularly, or I guess more regularly. I don't use it so much now, but when I when I was trying to clear out my gut or deal with different situations, or tr trying to figure out what was going on inside the gut overall, oregano oil is something that I use quite often. That was quite helpful, and then I've also tried probiotics afterwards as well. And that's a whole that's a whole different story because they got some. I've gotten some, like for example, some gave me eczema, and I never had eczema in my life. And then others, uh, you get, I got histamine reactions, whatnot. It really depended on the strain in which probiotic I was using. But yeah, that's a whole other story. I'm currently using l one of the strains uh, to protect this uh, strain. And so far, so good. I don't any, I haven't noticed anything bad. And so far, I think I've like, okay, so the thing is like, there's too many variables. I'm also using topical DHA. So that's kind of like interfering with the experience that I'm getting from the probiotics. But so far, no, so good. I don't feel anything negative. But what I do feel is that um, I don't, I don't want to placebo myself, but I do feel like a little bit more like calmer. Don't necessarily want to fight. Um, you know, you, you feel more calm to resolve issues instead of just like freaking out. I think maybe a lot placebo. I don't know. I just feel like there's a percentage improvement. And then I also feel like perhaps I'm recovering a little bit faster, which has been shown with Al Okay. That, that side tangent is going on for too long. I wanted to ask you, um, what would be like low dose or high dose when it comes to like the, the uh, antibiotics, like obviously you get different doses from testocycline and minocycline, doxycycline, those kind of stuff. What would you consider to be low dose? And then obviously you have the therapeutic dose. I know it's like a hundred milligrams. Do you consider that to be the therapeutic high dose? For, for what? Mino? Minocycline? Let's say mino, yeah, yeah. So I think minocycline is a hundred milligrams would be, well, so there's different therapeutic doses for treating different things. Uh, if you're using, if, if you're using minocycline to treat acne versus if you're using it to treat like Lyme or mycoplasma pneumonia or any of those types of things, you're going to have different dosages. I don't know all those dosages offhand, but there's a website called drugs.com, which lists for providers, the dosages for different diseases or, or infections, if you will. Now there's also 
uh, for minocycline, there's offhand uses because it does have some anti-inflammatory effects inside the central nervous system. And then it also, the tetracycline class of antibiotics affects certain enzymes. I think it's the matrix metalloproteinases. And that can affect or alter different autoimmune diseases or connective tissue inflammation patterns. So there's a, there's a group, I think it's the road back is the website where they're using low dose tetracycline or low dose minocycline. I think it's either 50 or hundred milligrams a day, once a day. And that they're using that to treat autoimmune diseases, uh, particularly connective tissue disorders, ankylosing spondylitis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis because of those effects. And then perhaps there may be something to do with the antimicrobial effect as well. Uh, so I say a lower for minocycline, you know, there's, you could be at 25 milligrams, you could be at 50. And then I think hundred is where you start to get into the therapeutic ranges. And it really depends on, on what you want to do, but you can look these things up on drugs.com. I don't know all of the therapeutic dosage off the top of my head. What I will say is that with the tetracycline class, tetra, like a tetracycline itself, like the antibiotic, just tetracycline is significantly less bioavailable than doxycycline. And then doxycycline is less bioavailable, particularly for the uh, moving across the blood brain barrier than minocycline. So as you, as you, as you increase, or you move from tetracycline, doxycycline to minocycline, the dosage actually decreases because of the, the increased tissue concentrations that are able to be achieved by the drug. And the, the minocycline, because it is more fat soluble, it can get into the central nervous system quite well. That also increases the side effects because it can cause like balance issues. It can, it causes like a, like a dulling effect, like a kind of a weird brain foggish effect. Um, and then for people who are having any type of like central nervous system infection or something like that. I know there's a lot of people who, or there's at least in the United States, Lyme disease is a, is a thing. It's kind of a deal here. And I, I was always was curious. I think that it is possible, but I was always curious if minocycline was a better option for people for Lyme because it actually penetrates the tissues quite well. And it does have a, it does have a killing effect on Lyme bacteria, but especially I think it's safer than a lot of the IV antibiotics and protocols that some people go through with Lyme. Uh, just cause I've seen a couple people come through with Lyme and the stuff, like all the antibiotics that they run through, they wind up developing all these issues after. And a lot of people say it's he like healing from Lyme, but I'm, and perhaps that's the case. But I'm also curious if it's actually an effect of taking so much harsh antibiotics and drugs uh, over an extended period of time. Some people are on treatments for months and months on end. So I just that that was always curious to me. And I was always always would wonder if minocycline might be a therapeutic option there, even at low doses over time. Okay, so those people that are suffering from the collagen degeneration uh, autoimmune condition, you said they use it long term. I don't know how much you've actually looked into this what would be considered long-term that those people use? I think they, they take it almost perpetually. Um, I think it's at like 50 or hundred milligrams a day per, I think at night, because it is have like a slightly set, it does have a slightly sedative, sedative effect. Um, and they just use that. And apparently I don't have an autoimmune disease, so I haven't tested it out, 
but apparently it does it does seem to it does seem to keep people in remission which is if you can use something like 50 milligrams of minocycline a day or hundreds of milligrams of minocycline a day and the major effects that you're getting from that are just a little bit of sedation at night before you go to bed maybe some dizziness and you're not getting two negative side effects that I think is, a, and it's putting your autoimmune disease in, res, in remission. I think that's a way better option than some of the other autoimmune disease drugs they have out there. The, a lot of the other ones side effects are ridiculous, uh, particularly from an immune system standpoint, like for example, some side effects, oh, increased risk of cancer, like significant increased risk of cancer, increased risk of tuberculosis, increased risk of XYZ infection. That's type of stuff, you know, with minocycline, you may have some at the lower dosages, I think there was a study too. I think maybe Danny might've posted this or discussed this, but at the lower dosages, it, or maybe it was Georgie, the effects of minocycline don't seem on the microbiome, don't seem to be, don't appear to be so negative. So if you're taking lower dosages on a consistent basis, you may be getting the therapeutic effect of the medication without necessarily disturbing the microbiome, which is, which in some cases, the disturbance might be might be helpful. Like if you have, if you have ankylosing spondylitis and you have a high amount of Klebsiella pneumonia bacteria on your gut, taking down some of that Klebsiella pneumonia might be helpful. So, but that's also been shown to be managed by diet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so a few people have shared with me their stool tests specifically through a uh, biome site that they have PFA. So I'm interested to see like how the microbiome is taste, uh, changing when someone uses something like finasteride, because it has been shown to affect the microbiome. And then if you can, you know, see what's high and what's low, you can then address that specifically with certain antimicrobials or like antibiotics, maybe some probiotics and stuff like that. So yeah. I've just seen like some of those bacteria that are high um, can be lowered with minocycline and doxycycline. So I'm just wondering like people that have PFS, if um, this is just a few tests that I've seen, I haven't seen like hundreds to, to kind of like conduct, like this is what happens. So take this with a grain of salt, but I'm, I'm wondering if like, minocycline will not be able to help people with PFS by shifting the microbiome back to a more, uh, okay. So because if you have too much of certain bacteria, it's producing toxins to something that can negatively affect the immune system, also the nervous system, you know, the gut brain axis, those kind of stuff. So by uh, killing the axis, bad bacteria, or just the axis bacteria, you can then kind of like help to resolve your symptoms. And I know uh, people with, um, with PSSD, like these serotonin drugs also affect the microbiome. So by using, there was, there was a guy on Reddit that was using a protocol. He combined like um, an antibiotic for SIBO. I, I don't think it was for Faximin. And he used a few antimicrobials as well. And he like significantly improved his symptoms uh, by modulating the gut through that mechanism. But the thing is like, when it comes to biome site, they only test for bacteria and you have like parasites and fungus and various other stuff that you don't necessarily see with only a bacterial test only. So um, I, I think this makes it so difficult. And when you look at these tests, like this bacteria is high and this one is low. And it's like, okay, so what does this mean? What should I be using? You know, it's complicated. <laughs> it's confusing with all of oh. this kind of stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I think there's just so much a uh, side train that I can talk about because I've been re researching more of these serotonin drugs and how they relate to like PSSD and the sexual dysfunction and why that is. But I don't want to get into that now. Um, so you want to say something before you dive into your study, man? And this is a good transition, yeah. maybe. Yeah, there's a... Well, first of all, we talked about the off-target effects of the drugs. Like, for example, when we were talking about metformin, 
actually increasing acromancia and that being its main effective benefit as opposed to its it's a complex two or complex three or forget which one it was inhibition inside the mitochondria which is obviously not a benefit in forces glycolysis so i think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these drugs regardless of what their label use from the pharma company discusses have a whole host of other effects that you know they're still if they're even looking into them they're still discovering uh which makes makes some of these and i think that's why dr pete had mentioned at one point in time that you don't know the true effects of, of a drug until like a couple decades of use because you don't you won't know the long-term because the pharmaceutical companies they they're not testing that they're waiting to see that's what post-marketing surveillance is <laughs> which is essentially the, I think it's the fourth stage of drug development is post-marketing uh, surveillance where they literally just put the drug out into the population. And they're like, okay, let's see what happens. And then there's been quite a few drugs. Like for example, the, um, what is it? The fluoroquinolone antibiotics went out in post-marketing surveillance. And then there's, there's now black box warnings for, I think, neurological dysfunction from mitochondrial dysfunction, and then also tendon damage and rupture. So it's like they put the drugs out, everybody used them, that a lot of people got these effects. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, we didn't know about this. You know, that's <laughs> until a couple of years later. So um, always important, I think, to keep that in mind, the off target effects. And always, I think it's always important to keep in mind that a lot of these drugs are poisons. A lot of these, uh, like I give medications every day. I look at some of them like I, I did that whole piece that we talked about on statins. I give everybody in the hospital statin. And I'm just, I'm like, man, this, this stuff is, this stuff is poison, <laughs> but it's like the doctor ordered it and it will lower your cholesterol. So it's important. There, there's like, there, a lot of them are protective compounds that are pulled from either fungi or bacteria or what some plant compounds, right? Like digitalis, which is, uh, comes from, I think it comes from foxglove, uh, the digitalis plant that's digoxin that we it's, it's a cardiac toxin it'll if you take it in high enough doses it'll blow your heart out but we give people low doses of it so that they can manage their heart failure so i mean i mean that that is the allopathic approach to some extent so all that aside um i think i'll just jump into my study i had something else i wanted to mention about the micro oh <laughs> Sorry, man. Continue. No worries. No worries. Uh, before I jump into my study, one of the things I wanted to mention that I think is really intriguing and I think is a, an area that isn't really discussed in the Western world. But So we're using antibiotics, but I think that bacteriophage therapy is something which, you know, there's not a lot of exposure here. There's not a lot of opportunity to get bacteriophages, but I think bacteriophage therapy for people's bacterial or microbiome issues might be uh, like a very promising future target uh, in conjunction with strengthening up the body because the, with a bacteriophage, essentially a virus that infects bacteria and it's when it infects the bat, it, it only affects a specific bacteria. And what you can do is the bacteria can develop resistance to that virus, but then you can consistently expose that virus to the bacteria and strengthen up the virus so that it can then target that bacteria again. So the reason I bring this up, and I think, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this here before, but when I was having a whole host of gut issues and I took a stool profile, 
my stool profile came back heavy in Klebsiella pneumoniae. And I was having a whole bunch of joint issues at that point, which is what Klebsiella pneumoniae is uh, notorious for, as well as digestive issues. And I ordered some bacteriophages from Russia, um, from a Russian pharmacy, because in the Eastern, in Eastern Europe, bacteriophages are a thing. And after my stool, so I took the bacteriophages, I, there, it's literally, it came in a liquid. It was, it was a super pain to get it over here. I literally jumped through so many hoops. But when I finally got it over here, when I took it, uh, I redid my stool profile afterwards. And I had no Klebsiella pneumonia before, whereas previously I was plus four. And so when I took it, I didn't have a Herx reaction. What essentially happened was I just like, I think I had like a little bit of loose stool and I felt completely fine. And then after that, nothing. And it was just like, Oh, it was like a, I think I had two bottles. So it was like a two day deal, which was, you know, now I didn't get the stool test like that week and get, then get the next one the next week. I get, cause they're quite expensive. So I got the stool test did, the bacterial phages. And I think I did herbal antimicrobials. And then like a couple weeks later, I did the second stool test and I was, I had no Klebsiella growth in my intestine, which was, and my joint symptoms had gone away. And then afterwards I started to realize that I didn't do well with starch. Eventually that came later. So, so yeah, that, I just wanted to bring that up. I don't know if you want to say anything about what's it. the specific brand that you use for that one. I couldn't even tell you. It was, <laughs> was it like Russian? Just watch it. <laughs> it was straight. It was in. It was all Cyrillic letters and whatnot. I I was literally like to understand what was in the the product. I was just translating using a using a Google Translate or something. <laughs> so it was a uh... because the reason I'm asking is because I think there are quite a few different bacteriophages products out there. So you don't really know which would be a good one. There was another one that I saw called Intesti bacteriophages or something like that so i was just wondering maybe it was that one or uh, no this one was specific for klebsiella like so when i bought the phages they the phages were kind of standard and they were specific for different bacteria and so the ones that i bought was specific for klebsiella pneumonia oxytoca um i think those were the the two main ones and then i had bought i just because i was getting them I was like, I might as well just get a whole bunch. So I got some specific for strep. I got some specific for staph. I got some specific for uh, E. coli. Um, so I like got a whole bunch. And I was just like, let me just try them. Let's just see how this goes. This bacteriophages from Russia shipped over. <laughs> I got them through customs, whatever it was. It was yeah, it was a huge, uh, it was a lot of work. Like I was quite frustrated when I was going through it. But yeah, I did notice a benefit from those. That and then the herbal antimicrobials, more so than any of the antibiotics I ever used. Okay. Can you send the link to the pharmacy after the call? Yeah. Well, the pharmacy's not in, <laughs> it's not open anymore. I've, it's, if for anyone out there, the pharmacy was called PharmaLad, like okay. P H A R M A L A D. So I don't have a link to it because it's broken. It doesn't work anymore. And I've tried to search for PharmaLad again because I've had clients who has like, Oh, maybe uh, bacterial phages might help. And I was like, uh, I was like, there's, this is where I got mine. Not saying that you should go here, but this is what I did. And this is what I tried. And then that's broken. I don't even think the pharmacy was up. This was, this was in 2017, 2018 that I did this. So why did you specifically use that pharmacy? 
<laughs> because I was the only one that I could find that would ship me bacterial pages. Like I, really? I looked, I looked for most from from Eastern. Like they were in, I, they were in, uh, they were in Russia or the Ukraine, some somewhere like that. So I like reached out by email to a, a bunch of pharmacies in Russia that I, I was like trying to find online Russian pharmacies for this stuff, and then I sent a bunch of emails and they got back to me. And so, they, so there isn't a company in America selling these stuff. No, no, this was not an American company. This was a this like straight out of the I think it was either Ukraine or Russia. That's interesting because I've seen um, companies that is not from the Ukraine that do sell these uh, bacteriophages. Have you ever seen them? Do you think it's just like new companies that um, there's a higher demand and now more companies are producing them? Have you ever like looked back into like uh, sourcing them again, like recently? The one place that I saw that I actually considered. So at one point I thought that my issue personally with my digestive stuff was entirely microbiome bacterial stuff. I, cause I wasn't considering scar tissue from surgeries. I was like, Oh, I, I shouldn't, I'll be fine. I shouldn't have that. I was young, whatever. I kind of like discounted it for a long time. Um, so I thought it was entirely bacterial. So I kept trying to treat it, whatnot. So there was this Institute inside Georgia, not Georgia in the United States, Georgia in, in Europe. Um, I think it was in the city of, I can't even pronounce it, but I think it's like T-B-S-I-L-I to Silly, something like that, There, which is, I think, the, well, the main city there, one of the main cities there. But essentially, there's an institute over there where you go over there, they culture whatever, wherever you're having the problem. So if you're having the infection in, you have a skin infection in your arm, you have prostatitis, you have uh, some type of GI infection. They'll take a culture, they'll see what the bacteria is, and then they will create bacterial phages specific to that bacteria, and then they will give them to you. And then they'll, they will run, they'll, they can keep running iterations of that process. So say the bacteria is still there, it develops a little bit of resistance, then they will pass the virus through that bacteria multiple, multiple times again, until it's able to kill, effectively kill the bacteria, they'll strengthen up the virus, and then they'll give you that batch. So they'll keep they do that process until they wipe out whatever's gone. And I had read like a decent amount of reviews about this, this uh, facility and people saying, Oh, I had like bacterial prostatitis. I couldn't get rid of it. And then I went to this, I went to uh, Georgia. I did this procedure and it cleared out all of my, you know, it, it cleared my issues. So I was like considering going there. Um, but it was super expensive and I couldn't afford it at the time. I was like broke. I just got out of college. I hadn't like worked yet. I just had my savings and I was like having my issues and I was trying to figure it out. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll just have to figure out how to figure out an easier way. And so this pharmacy was the, this pharmacy was the option that I had. I didn't see so many other pharmacies. I know there's products now that do phages, but I haven't seen products I haven't seen them personally, not that they're not out there that, for example, target just Klebsiella pneumoniae. Like, could I, is there a store that I could go to online that has Klebsiella pneumoniae bacteriophages or Streptococcus pneumoniae bacteriophages or Staphylococcus aureus methicillin resistant bacteriophages? That's what, like, I haven't seen that. Whereas in that pharmacy, that's literally what they had. It was like for these, the different bacteria, there was a limited option, right? Cause there's, there's only so many, like, for example, in the hospital, there's only so many infective organisms that you see on average. 
like for example, yesterday, the gentleman who I had, who was who almost died was had Klebsiella pneumonia in his bloodstream from a urinary tract infection. So he got the Klebsiella in the blood and he has a Foley catheter, which is a cath. It's literally a line inside the penis that goes to the bladder and just drains the urine because they can't control their urine anymore. But so he, he had got an infection in there. It's quite easy to do that when you have a Foley catheter. And then he, uh, that infection got to the bloodstream and it was Klebsiella. So usually you see E. coli, you see Klebsiella, you see Streptococcus, you see Staphylococcus. Those are the bacteria that you tend to see with, with, uh, with sepsis or with infections. There, there's, there's, there's other ones that it can be, but it tends to be a certain group. I don't know the different percentage chance for each one. Um, I'm sure you could Google that. So, so they had the bacteriophages for those. And I just so happened to have an overgrowth of Klebsiella. And then once I took that bacteriophage, I didn't anymore with some herbal antimicrobials as well. Pretty cool. Yeah. That is cool. I have not looked that deeply into bacteriophages and where you can source them in America, but um, I probably should do that because I think they can be quite powerful, except if you have to direct someone to Georgia, that could be like, you know, people might want alternatives. <laughs> We're going to do a Hans and Mike bacteriophage company. Just stay tuned, guys. We're gonna we're gonna become virologists and create bacteriophages. Yeah, man, that sounds complicated. Maybe I think <laughs> not as complicated as your omega three article. <laughs> True, it's just another area to explore in depth, I guess. Yeah, and that's that wasn't a shot against the article. That was just you went pretty in depth in that one. Yeah, I think any so, any topic can be mastered as long as you just you know spend the time. Yeah, time and effort. So, I guess we can jump into this to my study for today. It's a simple one. It's an easy one, but and I I think I alluded to it in our last podcast. Uh, so, and I've mentioned this quite a few times, and so I've been experimenting with butter again. And every time I introduce more saturated fats into my diet, I feel great. As far as androgens go, my drive, my libido's up, my assertiveness is up, my directness is up, my overall feeling of um, like ambition just drastically increases. So and then also, interestingly enough, which, you know, for a lot of people shouldn't technically according to the mainstream ideas this shouldn't be the case but when i put more butter back in my diet i actually get leaner and uh my muscles get fuller so i actually you know i feel i feel better overall um so and i haven't really been exercising and i actually lean down a little bit now i did lose a little bit of weight from covid i'm not gonna lie but i i think a lot of it was water weight because it was only about five pounds and i will fluctuate five pounds or so on a daily basis. So overall, just like my, my look, like it's kind of like shrink wrapped a little bit around my waist um, and all that. So, and I just, the, the feelings are better overall. So the problem is, is that I've tested positive for in, in the past an allergy to cow dairy. And so I haven't like, while butter makes you feel great, I do get some digestive issues for with using it. So that I did find here goat butter. So that's what I've been using. 
and I literally haven't had a single digestive issue. So initially I thought it was from bile acid changes because the palmitic acid in certain, in some rat studies and whatnot can show that it changes the bile acid composition, which can create an overgrowth of uh, sulfur producing bacteria like Bilophilia wadsworthia or Disulfovibrio pyger. I think those are the two main ones. Uh, and then those are endotoxin producers and they can have X, Y, Z effect. Haven't had, so I think I thought it was either that or it was the small amount of casein inside the butter, which is what my allergy to is too, uh, was triggering digestive issues. And it, so I thought the casein thing was such a non-issue, like it, there's such a small amount that it wasn't even worth it. But apparently I guess that it is because goat butter does have a decent amount of palmitic acid as well. So anyway, so I've been tolerating the goat butter well, had all these changes as far as the androgenic effect, especially compared to previously I was doing monounsaturated fats. This was olive oil, uh, extra virgin, the Cortina variety, which is lower in polyunsaturated fats, macadamia nut oil, beef fat, which does have saturated fat. But if you are combining it with uh, macadamia nut oil or macadamia nuts, then it's actually uh, quite a bit lower in saturated fat than if you had beef tallow with butter. So now I have beef tallow with butter saturated fat is a lot higher, feel, feel better. So throughout all of this, I was, I've been looking for, for a while about the effect of fat on testosterone. And there are some papers discussing this. However, there's not so many, there's not really that many papers. And something that I've noticed is that low fat diets or low saturated, low monounsaturated fat diets crush in my experience and with my friends as well, their testosterone levels, their androgens. A lot of times I'll, even with clients, I'll have a guy come to me and he's on a low fat diet and he's having oh, my libido's poor X, Y, Z, my, you know, I don't have that ambition anymore. I don't want to work out in the gym, whatever it is. There's usually those symptoms all tend to come together and then it just, okay, let's increase your fat. Okay. Let's, let's change the type of fat that you're eating. Let's change the ratios between monounsaturated and saturated. Let's eliminate polyunsaturated as much as possible. And it's like a, there's a turnaround just from that. They don't need to hop on TRT. <laughs> they it's more, it's about fixing the diet, getting a diet, right? Um, so this study here, low fat diets and testosterone in men, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis of intervention studies goes through the, how low fat diets appear to lower testosterone. So there's a lot of um, introduction here overall. They're talking about how testosterone has dropped precipitously over the past couple decades, trying to figure out why. Um, there's a bunch of reasons that I'm sure both Hans and I can discuss as possible causes. Um, this is, they're talking about their strategy for the articles here. Again, strategy for choosing the articles, how many they, they choose. These are the, the articles they wind up choosing, but I want to get over here to the, to the good stuff, to the results. So they, the studies that they have here had a total of 206 participants with a mean age of 46. And then the intervention diets range from two to 10 weeks. So this is the population that we're looking at for uh, low fat versus higher fat diets. The weighted mean difference in fat intake for low fat versus high fat diets was 20% of total energy intake or about 580 calories. So but it looks like there's about a 20% difference in energy intake between the low fat and high fat diets, which wound up being about 580 calories uh, worth of fat. Um, so they go through the studies here and they go through, uh, this is their analysis. 
And basically the results come out here and they say there's a small non-significant decrease in LH on low fat versus high fat diets. So LH is a uh, leucinizing hormone. It's one of the hormones from the pituitary that signals to the, to the testes. And then we come over here, it says there was a small non-significant decrease in sex hormone binding globulin on low fat diets. So non-significant decrease, it was quite small and just SHBG, which which supposedly binds up testosterone inside the blood. Um, and then uh, from the current, from the modern model, the idea is that once testosterone is bound to SHBG, it's unable to be utilized and kind of floats around in the bloodstream. There's all, some alternative perspectives on that. I'm not going to jump into that now. It's a whole other story and argument. I don't, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Hans, or. No, I, I'm not, not at the moment. Okay. So basically on a low fat diet, you had a little bit of lower SHBG, but that also could have been because you had a higher carbohydrate content because higher carbohydrate contents can also lower SHBG. So it may not necessarily have been related to the lower fat. Um, then the next important piece here is there was a small significant decrease in dihydrotestosterone on low fat diets versus high fat diets. Um, and then we come over here and there was also a in here, I, I don't think I highlighted it here. I don't know where it was, but essentially there's a, a small, uh, I think significant decrease in testosterone on the low fat diet versus the high fat diet. So they come over here and they, they kind of discussed some of the mechanisms here. Um, so what they're saying is dietary fiber intake was likely higher on low fat diets versus high fat diets, which has been suggested to increase T or testosterone excretion by modulating the enteropathic circulation of steroids. So essentially the fiber can bind up the testosterone secreted in bile acids and pull it out. Uh, so they're saying on low fat diets, there's generally higher fiber intake and there's maybe the fiber is pulling out the, uh, the testosterone from the uh, bile acid supply and that's lowering it. But what they're saying here is, however, we found lucianizing hormone um, and unbound testosterone excretion decreased on low fat diets, which suggests decreased T production rather than increased T excretion. Moreover, using a 12-hour tri-deuterated infusion of testosterone weighing 2005 found no change in tea excretion on low-fat diets, but decreased tea production. So essentially, the meta-analysis, there's, there's obviously, it's, there's a lot of association here. Um, the meta-analysis here is discussing that lower-fat diets appear to, to decrease testosterone production rather than adjust the testosterone excretion. So on a lower fat diet, and this matches my experience, which is why I wanted to share this study. Um, the next thing that they discussed, I don't know where it is in here at the moment, but Western men, this was this result, I think maybe it's up at the top here. I think the result was showing that this uh, was more significant in Western men or, or men of European and North American or European descent, this had a stronger effect. Um, and then there's some hypothesis in here discussing that men of European descent, since they came from the more Northern latitude and they, they, a lot of men of European descent developed a lactase persistence. So the ability to have the enzyme lac lactase present, which breaks down lactose, um, perhaps they needed higher fat in their diet or they adapted to higher fat in their diet 
to it, what, which would maintain their testosterone overall. So this, uh, especially considering that in the Northern latitudes, you have the colder climate. So you have less exposure to certain carbohydrate foods and whatnot. You may have had a higher fat diet overall, and then you have the ability to digest dairy and whatnot. I found this quite interesting because this is something that I've seen working with clients where different, different people with different ethnicities, dietary requirements or dietary, I guess, preferences or digest their ability to digest different foods have been uh, like vary. So for example, my fiance who's of Hispanic descent is capable of digesting starches and these different foods just fine, has no problems digesting beans and whatnot. That's something that's been her diet and her family's diet for generations. Whereas for me, I can't touch any of those things, have a huge problem, but I can digest red meat and tons of fat quite well. And I feel excellent. Whereas, you know, she likes red meat, but she doesn't, she's not going to eat quite as much. Um, and she doesn't really, she doesn't like, she's very picky about steaks. She's very picky about this. She doesn't really eat that much as much meat in her diet. So though, I think those differences are quite interesting. Um, and then I've seen certain clients who do well on lower fat diets and higher starch, higher carb diets and have great testosterone levels. Whereas other ones, they do better on higher fat diets in order to maintain their testosterone levels and function. And, and that's something that you have to kind of like, I don't have a generalization for different groups. I don't know. I haven't performed research on it. I just noticed the, the variation between different groups, different people tolerating different things. And I think that it's going to, people are going to have to test that out for themselves. So this is just a little short study, nothing too serious. Um, it is association. It's in the meta-analysis. Um, and essentially showing here that lower fat diets do can impair testosterone. And this is something that I've experienced personally, and I've seen with clients, friends, et cetera. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I wanted to mention, that's quite interesting that you talked about fat and testosterone. It's exactly what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and this is not something that we discussed beforehand. So this is quite no, synergistic. Um, so it's interesting what you mentioned about like, uh, your fiance don't want to eat as much red meat. And I find that it's, I, I wonder if it's more like sex dependent as well. So I, I know a lot of women don't actually want to eat as much red meat in general compared to men. So I wonder if it's like a gender uh, difference as well, including also where you, you like come from. If you like, so my wife, she likes red meat a lot, especially like lamb, that's delicious. Um, so she prefers the red meat, but I know a lot of women like prefer to eat like white meat or fish or something like that. They, they don't really like it. So I, I wonder if it's like gender and the combination of like ethnicity or, or where you come from, whatever that word is. There, um, yeah. There was a, there was a Hadza study where they were asking the Hadza what their preference for foods were. Um, and there was actually variation between men and women for food preference in the inside the Hadza group where I think the men's preference across the board, everyone's preference was honey. I think honey was number one for men and for women, but number two for men was meat. And I think number two for women was like berries so there was, a, it was an interesting um, deviation. Now they were talking about it. I don't have to study up obviously, but they were talking about it in, um, they were talking about it from the perspective of like women are collecting berries oftentimes and men are hunting. So perhaps that could explain the differences, but I just thought that that was in, and based on what you're describing, I thought that that was interesting. Uh, 
breakdown. I remember reading these studies and it's like, everybody loves honey. And then the men want meat and the women want like berries and tubers and stuff. I think tubers were actually like the one food that everybody listed as like a fallback food, like a subsistence food. Yeah. I think I I don't, I can't remember if I heard someone else talk about the study or if it was you mentioning the past, but yeah, I remember that now. Um, The other thing that I wanted to mention is in terms of like sex on bonding globulin. And uh, there was a, Okay, so fiber generally increases exome binding globulin. So lower fiber will increase free androgens. And then there was another study where they compared ha- giving men a little bit of red meat and other groups like giving them um, tofu. And they found that the testosterone to estrogen ratio was slightly lower on the group that was having tofu. So I think testosterone was more or less the same, but the sexome binding globulin index or, or the free androgen index was lower with a tofu group and the sexome binding globulin was a little bit higher. So there's a lot of things going on. Okay, I think all's good. I thought the dog was farting in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's totally inappropriate of the dog to do that. Anyway, so um, the other thing, (laughs) the other thing that I wanted to talk about um, is also the fat. And those was a study you were talking about more of the longer term studies, but the study I want to talk about was a, wait, let me dive into the long-term study uh, first. Was it this one? No, this is the wrong tab. Can you see this one? I can see it, yeah. On sci a dub Not on sci I see the panel on uh, PubMed. So you see the high-fat diet on post-absorptive and postprandial testosterone title? I can't see the title. I see the... Wait, let yeah, me just stop Okay. For some reason, when I switch tabs, it doesn't switch with with the anyway, you see this like the high fat diet title on a post absorption, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, okay. So, here they did an eight week study. They took men, they put them on a like a high fat diet, like 64%, and there was a significant reduction one hour after the fat uh, rich meal in total testosterone, also free testosterone, like 22%, 23%, which remained significantly below baseline at eight hours. So, this data indicated a high fat meal results in prolonged reduction in testosterone, free testosterone. That is not altered by lowering postprandial chylomicrons. Alter, alternative mechanisms, example, higher uptake at the receptor level of the cell other than chylomicron-induced or insulin-induced inhibition of sterogenesis is likely responsible for the reduction in testosterone and free testosterone. So what they're basically implying is that fat, um, Pete talked about this as well, that fat can displace tryptophan from albumin. So you have more tryptophan uptake in the brain, creating serotonin when you're in a fast state. So I kind of like think this is also what they say is that fat can displace the, uh, the androgens and estrogens and whatnot, the steroids from albumin. And then you have an enhanced uptake into a cell because they know free and they can enter a cell. So perhaps this is a hypothesis for what's going on because they say it's, it's not necessarily due to inhibition of steroidogenesis. So I got a tab open here in... Um, so we can see their diet was, I think this is the same study, right? The effect, yeah. Okay. So they gave these people uh, canola and olive oil. So it was a high MUFA diet. This is what happened. And their fat intake here, you can see it was seven. I mean, the carbohydrate intake was 7%, protein was 28 and fat was 64. The before they went on the diet, their carbohydrate was 44 protein was 16 says low and then the fat was 37 so it wasn't like low the protein was high i mean like it almost doubled when they went on the study their carbs tanked to, to close to a ketogenic diet and their fat almost 
doubles well. So then we, if we look yeah. at the testosterone, you can see their testosterone went from like 24.8 to 22.8 over eight weeks. So it kind of like dropped. As a result, free testosterone also dropped. Insulin dropped. But I found this interesting. Cortisol also dropped, even though they were on a low a uh, carbohydrate diet, but I think this is, keep in mind, this is a serum test. They did the serum levels and this does not indicate the tissue level of what's actually going on. Um, so here you can see like total testosterone at week one dropped the most, but then it actually started increasing again. So I don't know mm -hmm. where this would have ended up over a couple of months, like a year or so. Uh, cortisol actually went up, oh, there was uh, after meal. Sorry, this was, um, and then free testosterone followed the same pathway insulin increase and then start decreasing this was a meal sorry um but i just found this interesting that a higher fat diet led to lower levels of testosterone so this could be first of all because the carb intake was too low that didn't support thyroid function or it could be that their uh, protein intake was 28 grams but i don't think they were eating a bunch of um calories so it might have been like 150 it, it wasn't like they were in a high protein diet so I just found this interesting because there was a bigger study that I want to talk about. You can see this one, the effect of macronutrients, right? Yep. On reproductive hormones and overweight and obese men. So first of all, this is there's a difference again between how overweight and obese people respond to certain dietary changes and supplements compared to a lean individual. Different people respond differently to where they are in their health journey. So this was a very short-term study that gave people like different kinds of stuff like uh, PUFA, <laughs> And then the protein and also um, carbohydrates, different macronutrients to see what happened to testosterone. But before I dive into the study, I wanted to talk about how your saturated fat doesn't increase your testosterone. Man, I have to be honest, there's a study that looked at soy and soy oil intake, and it actually increased testosterone significantly. So I just mm -hmm. want to go into that study, man, because it's so important to, to bring out the truth about PUFA and soy oil. You can see... <laughs> The increased intake of soybean oil on the synthesis of testosterone in the Leydig cells. This was an animal study. I have to be honest. So, you know, it was. A I think I know which one you're going to do. Yeah. Is it, what's that? Was it in the pigs? No, it wasn't in pigs. This was an. Um, let me see. I think it, it was um, mice. Mice. Yeah, mice. So the diet, they Ugh. added in 20% of soybean oil. And um, then they looked at like like how the testers responded to luteinizing hormone. They looked at luteinizing hormone, a few of the enzymes, testosterone levels, and they conclude that increasing intake of soybean oil could raise serum linolenic and alpha-linolenic acid and decrease uh, serum palmitic acid. And this could activate the luteinizing hormone and then the receptor pathway and improve the function and steroid synthesis in the lytic cells and finally to elevate the testosterone levels. So there was a nice graph. Was it this one? That's no, not this one. Uh, serum testosterone, as you can see, the normal diet and then the soybean oil, it more than doubled the testosterone and almost doubled the luteinizing hormone. So if you want to consume an oil that's going to be androgenic, it's going to be the soy. And I wanted to dive into this one. Uh, there, the specific fatty acid analysis between the normal diet. Uh, this was the analysis of fatty acids in the serum, which I didn't find. I, I wasn't excited that they did a serum test because these fatty acids change the fatty acids in the testes. That's what, where you want to look at, the testes fatty acid composition, not the serum levels. And they also didn't look at like, um, like a lipid peroxidation markers, DNA damage, those kind of stuff. But I want to look at, show you their 
the supplemental. Let me just open this thing, it's taking forever. Can you see this word document? It is pulling up at the moment. However, nope, I think I just see the, the, uh, is it open on your end? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me, let me see if I can uh, reshare this thing. How about now? Now I can see it, yep. Okay, so here we have the soy oil, the normal diet, and you can look at the fatty acid composition of the, the fatty acids in their diet. So let's go to saturated fat, okay? Soy mm -hmm. had more miseritic acid. They had higher levels of palmitic acid. They had a significantly higher amount of steric acid. They had very high levels of erythritic acid, which is C20, saturated, highly saturated fat, and then very high levels of the C23 fat acid. So they, the soy oil had almost double the levels of saturated fat, especially the highly beneficial saturated fats compared to the normal diet. And if we look at monounsaturated fats, it was slightly higher in MUFA, but not significantly. And when we look at PUFA, uh, here's omega-3 and omega-6. You can see the omega-6 diet between the normal diet and the soybean oil diet was more or less the same. And the normal diet had significantly higher levels of arachidonic acid compared to the soybean oil diet. And arachidonic acid is much more inflammatory and problematic than linolenic acid because it's more it's a more unsaturated than the linolenic acid. And you can see the linolenic acid, there wasn't much of a big difference between the two groups, except the normal diet had significantly higher levels of arachidonic acid, making it much more inflammatory. And then we look at the omega-3, they had significantly higher levels of the um, ALA compared to the normal diet. So I was just finding this quite interesting that the soybean oil diet significantly increased androgens. But if you look at the fatty acid profile of the oils, it has significant high amounts of the beneficial saturated fats. It was the same level of PUFA compared to the normal group. And then it had higher levels of the omega-3 uh, compared to the normal diet, which means they most likely had increased in, because the omega-3 does oppose the omega-6, it creates less inflammatory byproducts than the omega-6. So I found this interesting, like this could explain why these animals got, got an increase in testosterone because of this high, high, high levels of saturated fat that was present in the soy. And um, that's why I wanted them to do a tissue analysis of the testes, because I can imagine that it would have had significant higher amounts of saturated fat in the testes in the soybean oil compared to the normal group. So um, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, finish up. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to say that's why you have to consume soybean oil. <laughs> well, compared to whatever else they were, whatever other oils they were consuming. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just an example. That's why you should dive into the details of a study. It's like, oh, soybean oil, everyone should consume soybean oil. Let's look at the details, details, and then you can see, okay, this is most likely why it worked. So there was an article on subversity i'm actually looking for it at right now um so there was an article on subversity where they fed i think it was pigs uh soybean oil and i think it increased testosterone uh hold on let me see if i can find it but it did so by like absolutely destroying um 
the pigs like uh the cells inside the pigs testicles yeah i'm trying to figure out i turn to see if i can find it um anyway well perhaps i'll I'll discuss it on our next episode but there was a so a couple things so i think i discussed a study on here previously where they where uh coconut oil versus different fatty acids change the fatty acids inside the the testicles and then that alters the enzymatic uh the enzymes functions inside the testicle because of oxidative stress. So the coconut oil group and I think the olive oil group had the lowest oxidative stress, whereas the the more polyunsaturated fats, I think it was soybean oil was one of them, or it was soybean oil or sunflower oil, safflower oil, one of those, it increased the linoleic acid concentration and drastically increased the um the unsaturated fats and the oxidative stress. And I'm going to share really quick inside the the I didn't want to go over it again because I thought I already covered it. But inside this study that I was that I just shared, they actually discussed this for the men where they're saying high PUFA versus MUFA or saturated fat diets result in decreased heat production via increased testicular oxidative stress, decreased steroidogenic enzymes, and decreased testicular free cholesterol available for steroidogenesis. For, eth- for ethical reasons, similar experiments have not been conducted in humans. This study was at, this was the one that was done in mice. Um, it says in rodent fatty acid intake strongly modifies testicular lipid concentration, but they said, however, intervention in cross-sectional studies have found that blood and adipose lipids similarly ref- reflect dietary intake with stronger effects for PUFA. That's in humans. High intakes of linoleic acid, the main dietary omega-6 PUFA have been shown to increase markers of oxidative stress in men. Oxidative stress is well known to adversely affect semen parameters, and this effect may extend to testicular steroidogenesis. Omega-6 intake has been inversely correlated to testicular volume, suggesting a direct adverse effect on testicular function. Thus, the decrease in MUFA and saturated fat intake and relative increase in omega-6 PUFA on low-fat diets may have altered testicular lipid composition and increased oxidative stress, thereby decreasing tea production. So what they're saying here is on low-fat, most of the low-fat dietary interventions, and this is the problem with these studies. When they do the low-fat dietary interventions, they'll like replace it with this plant-based garbage where it's like, oh, we're on plant-based now. So you're going to eat nuts and seeds and a whole bunch of raw vegetables and whatever else, rather than, you know, the burgers that you were eating before. And so they not just changing fat composition, they're changing fat type fiber concentration. So they're changing. So we already talked about how fiber may not actually be what was going on uh, or the cause of the lower testosterone in the studies that they discussed, it, it possibly can lower testosterone, but they are saying that that wasn't the direct cause. They're saying it's actually lower testosterone production in men. Um, but what they're, what else, the other pieces are also changing are the mon, are the fatty acid types. And that's something that you just highlighted as well, where you're just, you're increasing PUFA drastically, or you're, you're lowering monounsaturated and saturated fats and keeping PUFA the same. So then you wind up you can alter the tissue structure and have a higher concentration of PUFA, which can increase oxidative stress, decrease tea production, and then decrease uh, semen, semen parameters, which would be like motility or uh, morphology, things like that of semen. So the overall, there's multiple things that they change. So in these studies, they change all these things. And then it's like, well, you're not really telling me about fat concentration here. You're telling me about other things. It's not about, you know, it's like, yeah, this diet is 40% fat and this one's 10 
but the one that's 10 is 10 percent PUFA and then we have a whole bunch of fiber now and maybe you're subcaloric because it's hard to get that many calories and or you're eating massive amounts of grains now whatever it is think it alters things there's so many alterations taking place the one thing i want to mention and the first study that you discussed is when they went to 64 percent fat when i talk about increasing fat inside my diet or my clients diets or friends families whoever whoever asked me about these types of things uh, it's not going to 64% usually. It's usually going to like 30 or 40% and then having adequate carbs and adequate protein. I'm not, I'm not advocating for a keto diet. I think that there's problems inherently with that, which would be lack of carbs. I think this is another important piece, right? It's not about carbs versus fat or protein versus carbs versus fat or whatever other dumb debate is, is going on. It's about having adequate protein having the right amount of carbs for your particular situation and then having the right amount of fat for your particular situation to support your goals. It's not one versus the other. There's, I know there was a lot of talk about that on the forum and then even inside the, the bodybuilding world or, or all the diet world, it's like, which macronutrient is the problem? And then if you get, go down that path, essentially what you find is that all you can eat is protein because carbs, both carbs and fats are bad. And that's obviously <laughs> that's not a solid option. So yeah. yeah. Imagine that recruitment process. <laughs> we want to do a study to see if this oil will make your testicles fall off. Would you like to join? <laughs> right. Here's $10,000. <laughs> yeah. You can have them surgically replaced <laughs> with fake ones. <laughs> I'm just messing around. I should, you, you remember that prison study that I, that uh, I mentioned at one time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, it was like, they did ridiculous things to prisoners. Like that is definitely not ethical. Yeah. That they gave them a vitamin B5 deficient diet. So it's like, well, you're in prison. We don't have any ethics here. Let's just give them a hundred percent buffa diet and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It's good. That, that one was crazy. That was crazy. We're going to, we're going to severely deplete these nutrients from you and see what happens because <laughs> <laughs> you that, have no rights. <laughs> yeah. That seemed pretty crazy. All right, man. So to go further, um, I just want to talk about, uh, where was this endotoxin study? Because the endotoxins is kind of like in line with the fat and whatnot. And so they looked at just endotoxin. This was a study on inflammation. What a second intervention study, low dose endotoxin exposure in lean men produced a transient inflammatory response that was followed by a decline in serum testosterone without changes in luteinizing hormone or FSH, providing further evidence that endotoxin driven inflammation can result in impaired lytic cell function. Um, so this was in lean men and obese men. And so this is why I wanted to preface this. This study that used uh, obese men that had a higher prevalence of leaky gut and more endotoxin in the process. So obese men have a higher likelihood of having more endotoxin in their bloodstream and in their testes compared to lean men. And that's also why uh, more obese men tend to have hypogonadism because they have testicular inflammation and testicular inflammation is one of the main reasons for testicular atrophy over time. And this is where this uh, probiotic uh, L-ruteri comes in that it can actually preserve testicular size and function with age by lowering one of the inflammatory mediators into leukin 17a so one of the things that vitamin d and i think methylene blue can also do so i just thought that was interesting so to go on talking about endotoxin our own group has shown obese men have an increased prevalence of leaky gut low-grade inflammation induced by the passage of intestinal bacterial driven lipopolysaccharides LPS, which is endotoxin, and leaky gut and obesity were associated with metabolic endotoxemia. 
Um, ME, metabolic endotoxemia, have been associated with reduced testosterone levels in the epidemiological surveys and have proven to be a cause of hypogonadism when LPS is experiment experimentally administrated to men. Okay, going on, so the reason um, they talk about the LPS is because there was a study that they say that saturated fat enhances the uptake of endotoxin into the body, and that can cause more inflammation. And that's why you should be eating Pufan Mufa instead of the saturated fat, which I find interesting that they talked about this, but they actually didn't look at saturated fat in the study, which is weird. Anyway, as such, obesity-related hypogonadism may be a direct result of these dietary macronutrients and micronutrient intake rather than just reflecting excess adiposity. Interestingly, men with the highest energy intake from monounsaturated fat had the lowest percentage of morphological normal spermatozoa. I thought it was interesting to mention that MUFA can actually also be not so good. And uh, when you are in a Mediterranean diet, which is supposed to be high in antioxidants and all kinds of good stuff. These men doesn't actually have higher levels of testosterone um, than what you would expect. And they had sperm problems with the MUFAR. So I, it could be just a lack of the saturated fat, which has a protective and beneficial effects. And what do they classify as a Mediterranean diet, like olive oil, or do they add in canola in there as well? Because canola has its own problems, you know? So yep. while some acute studies have confirmed that meals high in saturated fat produce an average of 30% postprandial reduction in testosterone levels within one hour of their ingestion, returning to baseline levels in the next four to six hours. They talk about saturated fat, but they didn't taste saturated fat, which I found really strange. Um, I just want to see, because I forgot exactly, they did look at PUFA and the MUFA intake, but I can't remember what the PUFA was specifically. I just want to see if I can find that feeding protocol. There's nutritional composition. So they yeah. break down. Uh... So the, in the MUFA diet, the PUFA was significantly lower than the PUFA. Um, so maybe it was olive oil that they used. Let's see. Uh, extra virgin olive oil. Yeah, because they, they used, they used olive yeah. oil. At the PUFA, they used soybean oil. And then the, uh, let's go down, 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 down. Um, what was this? This is the different levels of the hormones. Anyway, here you can see like what happened. So the PUFA decreased the testosterone the most from fasting level. MUFA as wow. well, which I did found interesting. And then the carbohydrate plus PUFA also decreased it. And then PUFA plus albumin. The albumin here was they used egg the, the egg white protein so that's the albumin yep. so puff up this albumin the the albumin prevented the uh, decrease com uh, that the puffa caused look like carbs did too a little bit carbs with puffa but that was so small man so small i almost would yeah. say it's insignificant so uh, the carbohydrate i think the carbohydrate that they used here was just glucose or, or maltodextrin it wasn't like a special food so mm -hmm. carbs plus albumin also lowered a little bit. Carbs lowered a little bit. Fasting slightly increased it anyway. Let's say that's the baseline. I would. This is what I want to focus on. The, the protein, the albumin, actually increased their testosterone after consumption. So here you can see like the, the albumin and the PUFA like opposite sides. So it did help to prevent more or less the decline caused by the PUFA, but it completely prevented. I think that it prevented it by like 60%. So it didn't eliminate it. And yeah, as you, as you can see, they didn't taste saturated fat, which I was found interesting because I wanted to see 
what was the effect that saturated fat like butter or coconut oil would have because they say it's not the fat type it is the amount of fat that you consume which might be true but they didn't look at saturated fat so they can't say hey the fat type doesn't matter so i don't know it's something special about the albumin because the whey didn't really increase uh, testosterone compared to the fasting level but the albumin did and albumin uh, egg white protein is very insulinogenic and there's a study that say okay when insulin is released it uh, separates the testosterone from albumin and from sexual binding globulin increasing free testosterone and now you have more testosterone that can be taken up into the cells but this is clearly not what happened with this with uh, with the albumin yeah well you saw with carbs yeah 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 exactly so the yeah um i <laughs> i was almost like conflicted if i should be talking about the study because i feel like it doesn't really give an answer as to why and it leaves like mm -hmm. more room for speculation but I, I found it interesting nevertheless so so if you really want to boost your androgens according to the previous study soybean oil so it's going to be great <laughs> and then uh, egg white protein if you want to be a minimalist you know just those two no, i'm just kidding <laughs> they did say like <laughs> soy soy did lower testosterone <laughs> so yeah I, I think like if you want to have a protein source that's going to increase testosterone it looks like egg white albumin is going to be a good um, source of that yeah. Okay, so going into the details, we have previously shown that intravenous administration of PUFA, approximately half the amount consumed in this study, had no impact on serum testosterone, luteinizing hormone, estradiol, or FSH, while the identical oral dose of 25 grams of PUFA suppressed testosterone by approximately half the levels observed in the study, implying a dose response effect. I found this interesting because you talked about a study that the PUFA, when you ingest it, is being oxidized in the gut before it even goes into the system. So I wonder if that proof of oxidation in the gut by creating inflammation isn't actually what's inhibiting uh, proper steroidogenesis. So just a speculation. Because the intravenous dose didn't lower testosterone, but the oral dose did. Okay, this results uh, demonstrate that fat does not directly impair lutein, uh, lytic cell function, but rather the passage of fat through the intestinal tract elicits a dose response inhibition of testosterone production. So I, Did they test production at the testicle though, or they're just looking at serum levels? Yeah, yeah, they're just looking at serum level. They didn't look at intertestacular testosterone or exactly the oxidative stress happening in the testis. So then you can't really say if dose response inhibition of testosterone, because we, as you mentioned multiple times, it could have been a shifting of testosterone around. Yeah. And like, we don't know why it's lowering per, it from this study per se. Yeah. But yeah, so if PUFA, that's just what I said in the other study, this, uh, this IFAT study, is that what they speculate is that the fat displaces um, the testosterone from albumin and then the, the testosterone has been taken up into tissue. Now you have a drop in testosterone because more is being taken up in a cell. But yeah. the thing is like whey is also highly insulinogenic and egg white as well. So it's not like the insulin is displacing testosterone from albumin, enhancing their uptake, you would have seen the same effect. So it's not, I don't think it's the displacement and the enhanced uptake of testosterone into tissue that is causing the drop. But the, the problem is this is a very short term side, it's like five hours. Yeah. So it's almost like, are you really going to see an inhibition of steroidogenesis in five hours? So it's like, what is happening with that testosterone? I don't think it's an enhanced uptake into a cell. It could be enhanced aromatization. That's what, one thing that could happen. Yeah. Wait, maybe they did check estrogen. I'm not sure. They looked at changes in testosterone, 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 testosterone. I don't think they checked for estrogen. The only, the only reason I bring this up is because you see um, 
you see um like studies that show like oh having carbs after a meal lowers testosterone right yeah like there's studies that that's that look at stuff like that's like oh sugar lowers testosterone for x number of hours after meals so and then people use that as justification to not okay i'm not gonna have carbs that's why low-fat diets are better and it doesn't take like a lot of like it, it's hard to extrapolate sometimes from the, I'm not arguing with you. I'm putting perspective in general, which yeah, is like, I'm all, where I think we're on the same page is that a lot of the, like, that's hard. A lot of these studies don't show what a long-term effect is. It's like you have a whole bunch of PUFA and then it's like, is the long-term effect a negative effect on testosterone? It's like, that's most likely the case or even like low, some of these low fat diets and what's going on, despite what happens in some of these post prandial studies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't think that's a point of contention. I think we're agreeing just for everyone yeah, yeah. who's listening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, it does seem like they checked estrogen levels over the multiple hours, see what happened. And as you can see like um, the protein albumin, this light blue line had the highest increase in estrogen. Um, but it, because I think it increased testosterone. So this increase in estrogen is just paralleling the increase in testosterone. And if we look yeah. at, Pufa, a green line estrogen did go up a little but then it kind of like went back to normal mm -hmm. so yeah it feels like weird looking at the studies because it doesn't feel like it gives you a good indication of what's going on yes changes in testosterone we look at Pufa, it tanked but then kind of like went close back to baseline after like five hours but it didn't like go all the way back to baseline if we look at the estrogen it was more or less at baseline. So maybe like the testosterone to estrogen ratio did shift. So maybe that's what kind of happened. There was an increase in aromatization. Like all of this is just speculation. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so they said there was a significant effect on the feeding on estradiol, which contributed 27% to the variance over time. Um, I So... So they say that estrogen was more increased. Yeah, they didn't really give a good explanation of what's going on with estrogen. Anyway, for what's going on for why? That I'm just curious as to why the different the changes. That's all. Yeah, yeah. So they say a bunch of interesting stuff, but they didn't really give good explanations of what's going on. So it's like food for thought. I guess that's what I'm talking about the study. So that people will be pondering after the study. <laughs> you mentioned confusion. McDonald's like a ton of times in there. I see. Yeah, they did mention that one. I, that was a study where they gave them orange juice, right? And the orange juice like protected from the McDonald's meal or whatever. That is possible. They also talk about OJ in this study, which is that they say somewhat of a similar thing. Yeah. Okay, so however, MUFA olive oil had a similar negative effect on serum testosterone levels to that of a plant-based MUFA or animal-based uh, fat McDonald's study, which is BS, like animal-based fat McDonald's, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> so as the results of this study compared to our previous publication do suggest that dose response effect appears that the dose of fat not the type of fat is the primary determinant of postprandial decline in testosterone production i don't agree with this because they didn't taste saturated fat so you can't say it's not the type of fat and then uh, this study showed that a that an oj meal high in carbohydrates had little effect on serum testosterone with a minor postprandial reduction testosterone levels not reaching significance compared to that of fast state this finding was a little surprising. A previous study had linked the ingestion of 75 grams of glucose or dextrose to a significant fall in testosterone. 
it's interesting to speculate why OJ did not significantly impair testosterone production, whereas simple sugar solution do. One possible mechanism is that OJ contains a significant amount of antioxidants, whereas simple sugar solution do not. So I guess that's what they speculate. That the antioxidants, Always the antioxidants. Yeah, protecting. <laughs> well, unsurprisingly, the combination of OJ with PUFA failed to ameliorate the postprandial fall in testosterone associated with PUFA meal. So not sure if it's the antioxidants, though because they didn't protect the PUFA, or maybe it wasn't enough. Like, I don't know. It's so much speculation. Yeah. All right. Then we talk about, okay, so we also had a recent observed fall in serum 8-hydroxydoxyguanosine after, I think this is a marker of DNA damage, after the yeah. high-fat mixed McDonald's meal consistent of antioxidants in the food reducing uh, oxidative damage to DNA and concluded it was also unlikely that oxidative stress is the underlying cause of the postprandial drop in testosterone, combining... These findings are supported by a study showing that 760 men participated in a national health and nutrition experimentation survey who adhere to a Mediterranean-style dietary pattern, uh, typically at, uh, categorized by high intake of fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and fish, and a low intake of meat, with 40% of calories coming from fat and high in antioxidants possessed significant lower mean levels of testosterone compared to men consuming at libitum diet. So this is the, kind of like what I was referring to earlier, Mediterranean style eating men had lower testosterone levels than men eating like a normal ad libitum diet with more meat and possibly more saturated fat and they're only eating like 1900 calories there the... uh, it's both groups or where was that well if the fat was 40 percent of the diet and it was 85 grams i think that comes out that that oh. works out to about 1900 calories which is yeah. for me for a man is not that much calories yeah it, yeah it could be like Again, the calories was probably not controlled. And then that was why they had a drop of testosterone. That, that's a possibility. Yeah. Okay, so finally, it's interesting to note that the NAH, the NHANUS uh, database also showed that men adhering to very low fat diets, similar to the recommended by the American Heart Association, which is like 60 to 80 grams per day, were also more likely to be hypogonadal than men who consumed an ad libitum diet. This could be, <laughs> this could be low, like this isn't like low fat intake. So it could be because they were eating low calories and that's why they say you're an ad libitum diet that were eating more well, calories. Yeah. 30% of energy from fat and only 60, 80 grams per day. That's, that's even less than 2000 calories from the previous diet. And yeah. on top of that, if they're following the American heart association diet, then it's most likely their fat intake is oils, vegetable yeah. oils. Yeah. Yeah. Eliminating that's what they recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, total calorie intake is a, a stronger signal for creating testosterone than the kind of fat that you eat, because it all comes down to what you have energy for. Like the more food you eat, the more energy you have available for stereogenesis. And then obviously yeah. like the, the kind of fat you eat also makes a difference. But I think like the amount of calories you eat is more important. So most yeah. importantly, rather than reducing testosterone, egg albumin significantly improved testosterone levels compared to the MUFA, PUFA and a McDonald's mixed meal. Additionally, a mixed meal of egg, albumin, and PUFA compared to PUFA consumed alone was able to bl blunt the postprandial drop in testosterone by 65% overall with a larger difference observed within the first, fourth, and fifth hour. We believe that this result most likely presented the net effect of the drop in testosterone production induced by PUFA and the stimulatory effect of albumin. So they're saying like albumin stimulates sterogenesis and PUFA inhibited. That's just a speculation. It might be, but there's so many other variables as well. 
So I don't know. So although not uh, statistically significant, the type of protein consumed also appears to be important as whey produced a smaller increase in serum testosterone compared to pure egg albumin, which I find interesting because none of those two is really a good source of nutrients, uh, micronutrients. So I wonder if there's a different kind of compound in the egg white that potentially has the stimulatory effect that perhaps hasn't been identified yet. Like a peptide or something. Yeah, and I wonder if it's unique to like a cooked egg. Like I wonder how you know, if you would get the same effect if it's like a raw egg white versus a cooked egg white. Yeah. All right. So they said the mechanism by which albumin may boost testosterone production is presently unknown. Protein ingestion has been known to have a, a positive impact on the somewhat somatomidin Som axis. Basically, the growth hormone axis, <laughs> increasing yeah. free insulin-like growth factor IGF-1, as IGF-1 has been known to enhance testosterone production by insulin cells in vitro. It is possible that the postprandial boost in serum IGF-1 levels after albumin ingestion is responsible for increasing serum testosterone levels. Further study, future studies examine this possibility is clearly required. Um, that is a possibility, but I think like whey protein also increases IGF-1. I don't know how the two compare, but I think both of them increase IGF-1. So. Not sure about that hypothesis though. It, it could yeah, be. whey is I think one of the one of the better best stimulators of IGF one through mTOR. No, through yeah, leucine yeah. signaling. Yeah, yeah. These guys, these authors are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, food for thought, nonetheless. So, yeah, of course. Um, so we also acknowledge that we have. So they're just talking about the limitations. I thought this was interesting interesting to mention. We also acknowledge that we could have reported sex hormone globulin and free bioactive testosterone levels. However, we believed this to be unnecessary as a number of other research groups have reported no statistical significant changes in sex hormone globulin levels after the consumption of a mixed meal, high fat meal, or a refined carbohydrate meal. Um, so you're ju just throwing that out there with the sex hormone globulin and free. I think they could have and should have done that. Uh, because we don't know what's happening. And I don't know if you would have been able to pick it up, though, in the short term. Like, if if it is being displaced, how much of a window do you really need before that testosterone has been taken up by tissue? You probably have to, like, test much more rapidly to actually see the change there. Yeah. Okay, so just a conclusion. Almost done here. In conclusion, it appears that protein, particularly egg white protein, might be beneficial for enhancing serum testosterone levels with this effect observed within four to five hours of meal consumption. Both MUFA good fat and MUFA bad fat had a similar negative impact on postprandial testosterone levels over a five hour period. I wanted to mention, I don't know if you've uh, seen this before, but um, macadamia nuts is actually a very rich source of beta cetosterol. Mm -hmm. which then inhibit 5-alpha-reductase and can lower your DHT. So I wonder if certain people that are sensitive to beta sterol will not have, get a negative uh, boost, like a, a negative sexual effect from consuming too much nuts. Yeah, too much nuts <laughs> in general. Well, that's something that I noticed specifically that I had to stop. I was eating a lot of macadamia nuts and I felt like it was trashing my libido. And yeah. when I stopped eating so many of them i like immediately felt better That's and so I was, I was also thinking phytosterols as well and then you also when i read when you wrote your article about it i went to the link that you linked for your sources for it and i read through it I was like oh wow okay yeah quite powerful that's one of the strongest yeah. as i found yeah yeah so therefore our pilot data suggests that hypogonadal men should prefer high quality carbohydrate drinks such as OJ over simple sugars. <laughs> Can you believe this? Can you believe a study is actually saying that? <laughs> <laughs>
like those contained in soft drink in order to maintain optimal testicular function. So yeah, go OJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this may include men wanting to improve their reproductive potential or athletes wishing to improve their athletic performance, not only through testosterone long-term anabolic actions, but also through rapid effects on the behavior. I found this interesting. So I wonder like if you are going to train now and you consume something like egg white protein, gelatin, and OJ, you know, if you would not be able to perform better because you actually get that boost in testosterone in the short run. I don't know. The study is just basically saying that the American breakfast is the way to go. Eggs and OJ. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then you have Pufa and the egg yolks and that can potentially lower testosterone. (laughs) So we're going to have to get some like beef tallow fed chickens or something. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be awesome. Um, there was one study that I wanted to uh, talk about briefly, and then we can like uh, discuss this if you want and uh, finish this off. It mm-hmm. was looking at an uh, aromatase inhibitor and weight loss improvement hormonal profile in obese hypogonadal men without causing major side effects. They used um, ana- anatazolamide, ana- what? anastrozole, anastrozole, that's one. All right. So it was one milligram on a daily basis. And there's multiple studies showing that even if you use an estrozole twice a week at one milligram, you get the same reduction in estrogen compared to using it every single day. So you don't have to use it every single day to get the drop in estrogen. But they found after six months of therapy, the aromatase inhibiting and weight loss group, because both groups were doing weight loss, but one group used aromatase inhibitor, had higher testosterone and lower estradiol compared to the placebo and weight loss. Changes in symptoms and muscle strength did not differ between groups, but the aromatase inhibitor and weight loss resulted in higher fatness loss than the placebo without changes uh, different in lean mass. But I think uh, the study that looked at, what was this? Um, appendicular lean changes, and it had a, a slight increase in a, a, per, a certain part of the body in lean mass. So you can see, let's say, it's the weight. I had significantly more weight loss. Total fat loss was significantly more. A body fat weight was lost, but increased a little bit in the placebo group, which was strange. And then total mass decreased the most. So this is typically, if you don't exercise while losing weight, you're going to lose muscle mass. So by using an aromatase inhibitor, you actually lost less lean mass than the placebo group. And then uh, what's this? The truncal truncal fat. So the the fat in the midsection decreased the most with the aromatase inhibitor. And people say like, oh, if you have fat around the midsection, it's because you don't have enough estrogen. But the study kind of like showed the opposite. And also... If you look into details, details of the study, it didn't tank their estrogen. It took them from 30 to like 15 or 17, which wasn't tanking them. And there was another study looking at the aromatase inhibitor in bone health. And they found that it didn't affect bone health because it didn't crush their estrogen. It still had like more than enough estrogen for uh, what people think is important for bone health, you know? Yeah. I think so, that was kind of like it. Yeah. So essentially... What we've learned from this is if you want to be hypogonadal, follow the meta, a low calorie Mediterranean diet, follow American Heart Association guidelines, don't eat eggs and avoid orange orange juice and don't eat saturated fats, monounsaturated fats and eat a lot of PUFA. Yeah. Yeah. Including soy opposite of that rat study. Yes. And low fat diets. Remember low fat. (laughs) <laughs> high fiber low fat diet that's gonna make you feel awesome. high fiber low fat high poofa no eggs no meat no juice because it's a sugar you need to just eat grains and beans 
yeah. brains and beans. All of those, <laughs> all of those semi-cooked beans, just drizzle the soy over it. <laughs> and you'd be so, good. I did a, there is a study. I'm not going to go all the way through it. Uh, I didn't prepare. I just pulled it up while you were talking about the endotoxin piece. Um, but it's the gut endotoxin leading to a decline in gonadal function, gelding, a novel theory for the development of late onset hypogonadism in obese men. Um, and it just describes the process. So they say high fat calorie diet alters the gut microbiome. I think there's way more to just high fat, high calorie than this, yeah. but leads to endotoxin production. Then endotoxin production comes over to the testicles, activates uh, macrophages, and then that inhibits steroidogenic enzymes and Leydig cells, creating oxidative stress. Um, then the endotoxin impairs LH, uh, leucinizing hormone release, which signals the testicles to produce testosterone. Um, so you have like a, the other thing too is the endotoxin has an inflammatory effect in general inside the body that triggers cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin six, which have a negative effect on the entire hypothalamic pituitary axis. And then also the thyroid and then also the testicles. So it's literally a signal to shut down the like entire hormonal pathway. And no toxin is literally just like, it's one of the key things to shut it all down. Now there's a, the study that they mentioned in that paper, that long paper that you were just going through was talking about adding orange juice to meal, actually decreased postprandial endotoxemia in overall in general. So the, I think all jokes aside, takeaway from all of these pieces is to optimize your microbiome. I get adequate amounts of saturated and monounsaturated fats from, so, and try to minimize the phytosterols. I think that's important. So like for example, a good source of monounsaturated fat that doesn't have high amounts of phytosterols was, I think, olive oil compared to like the nuts and the seeds, which would have more, um, more of the phytosterols. But so monounsaturated, saturated fats, uh, optimize the microbiome or fruits and fruit juices. It's not, I don't think it's specific to orange juice. You yeah. could put pineapple juice, you could put pomegranate juice, you could put a litany of different juices in there or fruits or, um, whatever it is, like even whole fruits, dried fruits, frozen fruits, you can put a whole bunch of those in there and they'll still have a negative impact in the sense that the lower endotoxin just, it's like across the board, there's so many studies in rats and humans showing all this stuff. Um, avoid PUFA, avoid being in a caloric deficit, eat adequate protein. Apparently eggs are a great option for increasing testosterone. So there's like, these are all general strategies that don't involve pinning yourself with testosterone, it just avoids, it, it involves avoiding problematic things and, and bringing in the things that are important for testosterone production. Obviously, uh, I know you've done a ridiculous amount of work with this Hans, but vitamin D is something that's important with at adequate sun exposure. And then having all the other micronutrients that are important for testosterone production and our cofactors that your B vitamins, that zinc, that's magnesium, that's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, calcium, whatever it is making sure that you're topped off on your micronutrients. And the last thing I want to say is for anyone who's obese and is all oh, the other thing, lowering estrogen, you can pharmacologically, whether that you use an aromatase inhibitor or you use other compounds that have aromatase inhibiting effects, like some of the fat soluble vitamins, uh, like maybe a lower dose aspirin a couple times a week, things like that. 
uh, can help to lower estrogen. And then over time, which I think is the most important piece, it takes time for these things to adjust. You don't just switch onto the diet. And then two weeks later, you all of a sudden have a six pack. It's you switch onto the diet and you consistently maintain the diet. Consistency is extremely important with all these factors that we just discussed. You do that over the course of multiple months, maybe even a year, depending on where you're at and things really start to turn around for the better, but it takes time and consistency. And it also takes some awareness to, you know, figure out how you're feeling with different things. Some people don't do well with orange juice. They get rashes from it, whatever it is, or maybe you have a gut issue, or maybe you have SIBO, whatever it is. Uh, it takes time to correct those things. And the context changes as you go. Yeah, that's excellent summary, man. Um, nothing much to add there, except um, you're talking about estrogen. And there was an interesting study. I wanted to talk about estrogen and ED a little bit, but uh, we ran out of time. So just as a quick primer, one of the reasons why Cialis actually works for ED in the long run is because it acts as a aromatase inhibitor. So if you use like two, 2.5 to 5 milligrams like consistently, it actually lowers estrogen quite substantially and increases the testosterone to estrogen ratio. And that's why they say the endothelial function and ED function improves is because you end up with lower estrogen. And it also appears to increase the androgen receptor all of which uh, are good stuff, but I prefer not to use something like that, like drugs, even aromatase inhibitors, like uh, the, the pharmaceutical ones, rather use like the natural things that it will help to lower aromatase, like vitamin D, like the fat soluble vitamins, zinc, magnesium, selenium, those kind of stuff, make sure your diet's optimal nutrient dense. And as you mentioned, um, easy to digest foods, make sure you get some saturated fat and make sure you get some organ meat or oysters because that, that will provide the valuable minerals for all the cofactors for the synthesis, all, all the enzymes that produce uh, testosterone. So, yeah, I think this was a quite good roundup for, uh, you know, fat and testosterone and stuff. Yeah, I didn't, I don't think we didn't plan on having like a testosterone episode here. I think it just, it just happened serendipitously. That was, that was really awesome. I like, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I, do you want do we have a, we want to bullet point a recap for us on what we can do, what someone can do if they're overweight or they have low testosterone or they're low libido and before having to take any hormone supplements or any, or TRT or anything like that. If you, you know, 20, 30 year old guy, testosterone, what can they do? Yeah. Um, I think the place that I would start with is obviously you want to lower inflammation because the endotoxin is the first thing that's going to cause testicular damage. So clean up the gut, make sure everything's easy to digest, you know, and, and try to use things that will solve that leaky gut fear. That's where I would start. And then also eliminate polyunsaturated fats because that will potentiate the inflammation caused by the endotoxin and deposit in the testes cause oxidative stress. That's what, where I would start with. And then just slowly start to lose weight, um, preferably in a non-stressful way. Make sure you eat easy digestible foods when you do that. Um, eat a nutrient-dense diet, to support the cofactors, you know, <laughs> there's so many things that we haven't discussed here to increase testosterone. Get your sleep. Get no, the just the ones from today. Just the ones from today. Sheesh. Um, yeah, just eliminate the puffa and consume easy to digest carbohydrates like the fruit, like the OJ, like you mentioned, different kinds of juice and, and the protein. Like the thing is organ meat's very lean. So you have to throw in some saturated fat in, there in as well. So something like suet, tallow, as you mentioned, um, butter, but it's also good saturated fat sources. 
chocolate. A cream, like a dairy fat is actually also very good. It doesn't have yeah. the side effects that people think it does. I mentioned butter. That, that's dairy. What am I, who am I kidding? Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, chocolate, cocoa butter, something like that. Yeah. And I, and I still think that even though eggs are higher in PUFA, they can be, because they provide the cholesterol and steroids and phospholipids and stuff, that can be beneficial. As long as you don't like overdo it, uh, I think it can be beneficial. Yeah. That's going to be our next business after the bacterial phages. There's a, <laughs> there's a paper on PubMed about feeding chickens tallow and lowering the linoleic acid content of the yolk. So uh, just look for, at you know, coming soon, uh, low PUFA eggs and uh, bacterial phages for your gut problems. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be an amazing business. I don't know if you've seen this guy. I, I've seen a video on YouTube a while ago. He had like 400 chickens on a very mm -hmm. small area of, of on a, like a plot. What he did was he had these massive heaps of, I don't know what it was, like dung and like vegetable, um, like a massive dump of like organic material. So that okay. it was choked full of bugs and worms and everything. So these chickens would be like scratching and eating all day long on these bugs and healthy stuff that was probably local fat and they had extremely healthy chickens like living i just thought that was a very cool way of supporting a massive amount of chickens in a very small space healthily all right there you go we're gonna we're gonna have a big pile of dung it'll be right <laughs> on it when we have our eggs it'll just be like a what we'll call them like a we'll put a big pile of like dung on the label and you see all the chickens around <laughs> Mike and Hans is shitty eggs. <laughs> yeah. That, that's excellent. That's excellent. Excellent. Pun intended. Yeah. That's great. man. <laughs> so was there anything you wanted to bullet point that I might've missed? No, that was pretty much it. I think there's a lot of strategies in here for people, for, for any type, for any guy to really increase his testosterone, um, get those carbohydrates on board from fruits and easy to digest sources, get adequate protein from animal sources, including eggs, whey is an option, beef, seafood, uh, make sure you're getting adequate saturated fat, make sure you're hitting all your micronutrients, um, stay away from processed foods that can call issue, cause issues, stay away from PUFA, stay away from low calorie diets, stay away from American Heart Association, stay away from plant-based stuffs, stay away from too much phytosterols those are all solid yeah. options in there perfect uh, i would just add um i just want to add emphasis on like the meat and oysters because they provide more zinc so especially if you are estrogen dominant you have too much estrogen more zinc in the diet can be great for lowering estrogen and increasing testosterone and even dhd so red meat very good source of zinc and oysters obviously as you guys know as well so, you know, uh, I think raw oysters in the back in the olden day was considered a strong aphrodisiac. So like people would consume a lot of them raw. Honestly, I've never experienced that myself. And I, no, I get a stronger either. effect from like just eating beef and saturated fat. I think that's, that's better in my case. Yeah. For oysters though, I will say there's a recipe that, that we do is we get the oyster. We, or you can use a can one or we raw one, you boil it so that it's, it's cooked you take the oyster out you fry it up in some butter and you put some frank's red hot sauce on it it's pretty good i'm addicted to hot sauce <laughs> me too hot sauce and hot sauce ketchup and organic strained tomatoes i add it's like i don't know what it is i guess it's the single guy seasoning butter <laughs> salt and hot sauce and ketchup <laughs> 
I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, like it's too much. Like hot sauce can actually be like detrimental for the gut, cause like oxidative stress and stuff. But I'm like, I'm so addicted. I have to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's bad. All right. All right. Thanks guys for watching. This was a great episode. I hope you found a, a lot of great takeaways from this and uh, check you in the next one. Cheers guys. Take it easy.